Hello everyone and welcome to the Constructed Criticism Network. This network is here to help you improve in Magic the Gathering at every level. From popper leagues to top 1000 mythic, we've got you covered. If you want to hear the entire network, head on over to our sponsor at puremtgo.com where you can hear each and every show, each and every week, and check out their sponsor, MDGO Traders, and tell them that the CCMTG Network sent you. Now sit back, enjoy the show, from YouTube, podcasts, and more, here's this week's episode from ConstructedCriticism.com. How's it going, everybody? I hope everyone is well. Hope everyone is safe. It is currently dead at 3.30. Our September the 11th, 2020. And that means it's time for this week's trip down the homeward path. My name is Adam. I'm a husband, father of three. I just finished a admittedly shorter work week than normal for a lot of reasons. And I do this show for one reason. Magic is hard. Getting better, more so. And improving while magic is not your primary focus, doubly so. But if we stick to the three B's, budgeting, brewing, and breaking bad habits, we can do it. It can be done. And if that sounds like you, well, can you even fathom a world where you don't listen to this show? You'll understand why that's funny in a minute. Uh, but first, we're going to remind everybody that we are brought to you by PureMTGO.com. PureMTGO is one of the largest repositories of magic content on the web. A lot of good stuff going on over there. Love it. Love being a part of it, yes, but I just, I've been a fan for a long time. Same goes for the network, our parent network at ConstructedCriticism.com. And if you've been a fan of mine for a long time and want to show me, uh, you can head over to patreon.com slash homeworkpathmtg and show your support directly if that's something you're even interested in. But with that all out of the way, all the shills done, let's dive into our budget spotlight this week. And we've only got three. I didn't find another like unbelievably gross common to look at. But... For starters, we're going to take a look at Migration Path. Migration Path is three and a green, sorcery, uh, explosive explosive vegetation. Uh, Go get two basic lands, put them onto the battlefield tapped. Shuffle. But it has cycling for two generic mana. And there's several reasons this card is good. Like... Explosive Vegetation doesn't really need, like, the full-on treatment of why this card is good. You get to jump from four to seven mana. You get to, you know, with with nothing else happening, you get to jump from four to seven mana if you hit your next land drop. If there's any other effects that care about lands entering the battlefield, hmm, wonder wonder, wonder if that's on the agenda fairly soon. Any other effects that care about lands entering the battlefield, it will trigger them. Uh, Thins your deck out by two lands. Oh, and by the way, it's also not a horrible draw if you don't have anything and have plenty of lands in play. Because you can just turn it into a fresh card for two mana, thanks to cycling. 
So ramp strategies are going to get stronger post-rotation. I, I firmly believe that. Even though they're losing cards like Nissa, Hydroid Crisis, and the like, the return of Kicker, the rotation of mid-range staples like Nissa, like Crisis, like... Um, well, the, the forced rotation, if you will, of cards like Teferi Time Raveler, the just the overall massive transition of standard. Cards like Migration Path are going to be something some people are going to be interested in. More traditional, like, play the best thing on curve every turn. Mid-range decks are going to lose a lot. And this facilitates a fast Ugin as faster, faster than any other line of play in the format. Like, turn two Mana Dork or Wolf Willow Haven into turn three Explosive Vegetation into turn four Ugin is a very real line of play here. As long as you're hitting your land drops, you can do all of this. And if you have a, a Lotus Cobra involved in the equation somewhere, <laughs> it's even dumber. So, and again, even if it's not good as a mana ramp spell, it's going to be good because it's another card. It represents a fresh card from the top of your deck. It's not like drawing a ramp. It's not like actually drawing explosive vegetation when you've already got 15 lands in play. And, you know, not for nothing. It's an even cost spell for things that care about that sort of thing. Like our next card, Garuda, Doom of Depths. I mean, we'll dig a little bit deeper into this in a minute, but Garuda is an unbelievably powerful build-around magic card. Companion is a powerful mechanic, and this one was one of the most powerful right out of the gate. And then with the nerf, just stopped seeing play entirely. And while I understand it, I'm not saying I necessarily agree with it. It's just an unbelievably powerful card effect that is capable of slamming lots and lots of power onto the table or taking advantage of a lot of different enter the battlefield abilities. And anytime you can get way more mana worth out of your card than what you invested into it, it's something players want to do. I'm not sure why it fell out of favor. I'm not sure why nobody's looking at it, but Garuda is pretty high on my list of cards to look at post rotation. And even in its fail state, which is where you, like, floop a four-drop into play, where you're not hitting a Thassa or a clone or a, you know, a Spark Dweller or a Spark Double or a Spark Dweller, good grief. You know, even just Gyruda into Solemn Simulacrum is eight power, mill four from your opponent, draw a card if they wrath the board like that's still respectable they're still on a two to three turn clock 
You know, same goes for Garuda into a two-drop mana dork. Like, Garuda into the Elysian Karyatid is still seven power. More mana for next turn. Like, it's not what you want, but it's there. It's defensible. But that's presuming your opponent doesn't have anything you want and presuming that those mana dorks are the best things you hit. Like, obviously, you're not going to be in the fail state every time. But, speaking of some four-drop creatures, let's talk about one with our mythic this week, Pelucrados Unchained. First of all, name the most, like, the raw efficiency of this card is off the charts. It is a 4 mana 6-6. Six, six. That says when damage would be dealt to it, it's actually a 4 mana 0-0 zero, zero that enters a battlefield with 6 plus 1 plus 1 counters on it. And if it escaped, it enters with 12 instead. I guess it's kind of important that they didn't say enters with six and then if it escaped double that number because of cards like Conclave Mentor and other such things but you get the gist of what I'm saying the raw efficiency of the card is unparalleled in standard post rotation like we still have Rotting Registrar right now but you look at the ability list on the card the combination of if damage would be dealt to it, prevent the damage and then remove that many counters. And the ability to fight creatures for three mana. That's a big game. The ability list makes combat meaningful, or makes meaningful combat difficult. Because if something small's in the way, you can just fight it and then chip in for a little bit less damage. If something large is in the way, you can just fight it and get it out of there. Potentially not even losing your Pelucronos. And if you do, oh, by the way, it's got escape. So it's going to come back, and because of the ability we referenced on how it enters the battlefield, it's going to come back bigger, able to fight more things. It's just big, nasty, and mean in all the right places. The escape cost being four a green and a black. Uh, it fights and trades with, or just outright kills, basically every other mythic that we've talked about at the same point in the mana curve. Cards that cost between three and three and five mana that are seeing a lot of play at mythic rare. We're talking about cards like. Uh, Terror of the Peaks, Elder Gargaroth, I mean, you know, Baneslayer Angel, Pelucranos just says, no, 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 no. <laughs> the fun one, Pelucranos doesn't even let them gain life from Baneslayer Angel because you prevent the damage. So, like, if your Pelucranos fights Baneslayer, they don't gain 5 life, 
and she still dies. Now, yes, there are ways to use that against you. Absolutely. Burn spells are going to be something this card has to look out for in combat. But still, the, the simple fact of the matter, the combination of size, abilities, the ability to trade up in a major way in the in the mana curve slot. Like, the fact that my 4-drop trades with your unreasonably powerful 5-drop, oh, and by the way, this 4-drop is $4, and your 5-drops are... Well, let's just say more than $4. <laughs> it's pretty good. Oh, and by the way, even further, it's randomly synergistic with a bunch of stuff. It's even for a card like Garuda. It has zero power in the graveyard for a card like Nethroi, which targets a nu- any number of creatures with total power 10 or less. It has zero power in the graveyard. So you can just add six to whatever board you get back when you mutate a Nethroi. Ew. Like, the card is just ridiculous. Especially for both its mana cost and its financial cost. But, in case you hadn't already guessed, that brings us to this week's Brew of the Week. Each week we talk about a... uh, a deck that's either been around and is underappreciated, something we're planning to learn from in the main topic, or something that one of the patrons of the show has sent in. This week we're going to be talking about Gyruda Combo. For those of you who don't know what the deck is, it's less a combo deck and more almost, it, it's trying to play Yu Gi Oh! while everybody else is playing Magic. Your fundamental turn is four, so on turn four, you want to be able to play Gyruda and put as much power and toughness into play at once as possible. That is your goal. To facilitate that, you play some combination of ramp spells and big dumb creatures. Everybody's even, so you can still play the uh, original Gyruda as companion. Those of you who don't know what it does, because you weren't around to see everybody playing it for a couple of weeks. It's four and two hybrid blue-black. Six-six. In order to be your companion, every, uh, every card in your deck has to have an even mana cost. Even converted mana cost. And Garuda says when it enters the battlefield... Each player mills four cards. From among those cards, choose a creature with an even mana call, even CMC, and put it onto the battlefield under your control. Oh my goodness. Is this thing silly? Because it can put an additional copy of itself into play and go again. It can put Spark Double currently and in Historic, Pioneer, what have you, put Spark Double into play and go again. It can put Charming Prince into play and go again at the turn's end phase. It can put Thassa Deep Dwelling into play and go again at the turn's end phase. Um, 
you know, you look at Pioneer Modern, it can put Kozilek the Great Distortion into play. It can put Kozilek Butcher of Truth into play. Like, the card is just silly. And moreover, it gets around Leyland of the Void. It gets around Rest in Peace. Because Garuda's ability to return the creature doesn't say put that creature from the graveyard onto the battlefield. It says from among those cards, choose one and put it onto the battlefield. So the goal with the dedicated Garuda combo deck is to just resolve Garuda as early as possible and get as much power and toughness onto the table as remotely possible. Get as many triggers out of the Doom of Depths as, as you can. The reason why I picked Garuda Combo for Brew of the Week, it's a simple, straightforward, powerful, and proactive deck. Perfect for day one standard. Day one standard, also known as that day where people either play hyper-tuned aggro decks or a bunch of weird brews that need tuning. There's not really a lot of in-between. You don't see a lot of reactive decks on day one standard because day one standard is about trying to find out what the new format's about. Well, this could be the kind of deck that helps dictate that. You know, it, it's not a deck that needs a lot of new cards. It's not a deck that's gonna that's gonna wow anybody on the on the price side of things. It's not playing a lot of big, dumb, expensive mythics. But even with the rotation of Spark Double, you still retain a lot of your explosive potential thanks to having access to Thassa, additional copies of Garuda, and Charming Prince, to say nothing of any other creature that gives you a clone or blink effect. Or non-creature, for that matter. You know, Mythos of Iluna is an even-cost spell that makes a token that's a copy of a permanent and lets you go again. Even if you make the token and the token dies to the legend rule, you still get your trigger, which puts more power and toughness onto the table. You just keep going. So, most of the splashable hate pieces that actually work against this deck are rotated. Like, Leyline of the Void is going to be in standard, but it doesn't do anything. Grab Digger's Cage, the most splashable hate piece that was effective here and against a number of other strategies, rotates. The, the remaining piece of hate that really affects how this deck functions is Containment Priest. I don't know any decks that are playing Containment Priest. Like, Dronith Magistrate doesn't work. It just says I can't cast spells from the graveyard. Doesn't say anything about taking cards out of the top of your deck and flooping them onto the table. 
But why I look at this deck as a, as a strong day one contender is it punishes people who show up for the wrong fight. You know, you think about the decks that are most instantly viable post-rotation. The first thing that comes to mind is stuff like Mono Red, Mono Green, um, you know, Boros, Rakdos, Mardu, Orzhov Knights, Wynota decks, Adventure. All of these are decks that play a lot of small creatures. So from a reactive deck standpoint, or even just from an interaction choice standpoint in the format, if you're going to hedge your bets, you're going to hedge your bets toward cheap removal that kills small creatures so that you don't fall too far behind. Shock kills 90% of the creatures you need it to kill, unless you're playing against this deck. And then like it kills Charming Prince, but that doesn't do you any good. You know, the, the counter magic is going to be skewed toward non-creature spells. The the counter magic, the key for counter magic is going to be able to, going to be taking care of key non-creature permanents like Ugin, like Embercleave, like Planeswalkers, Liliana Waker of the Dead, the new Nyssa, Jace, Nahiri. There's not a lot of demand for Essence Scatter. There's not a lot of demand for... I mean, losing Quench makes it more... Like, there's not a good there's not a good look at a deck that wants to play for Neutralize and a bunch of other counter spells yet. And, you know, Mystical Dispute has rarely looked worse going into a format where it doesn't have Aethergeist to bail it out and outside of the control mirror like there's no blue spells in the Winota deck, there's no blue spells in Mono Red, there's no blue spells in in Mono Green, there's no blue spells in the, the Knights decks there's no uh, blue spells in or there's, there's very few blue spells in the Adventure decks I guess you could argue the prowess deck plays blue spells, but why would you want to why would you want to board dispute against them when you can just kill their small creatures? The answer to that is simple. You wouldn't. And then last but not least, the other reason I like this a lot is it can be built a lot of different ways. The linear Simic deck is the one that comes to mind first, where you just want to like you want to play a lot of redundant ramp effects at two mana play some redundant ramp effects at four mana play Garuda as companion and then all four Garuda or all the other three Garuda in the main deck um, and lots of juicy big dumb things for it to hit your fallback being like you can play Ugin you can play more big dumb things and just kind of rely on cards like Into the Royal to keep you alive. It's the linear version. It's going to be the one most consistently able to quote-unquote combo off. But it's not the only version. The mid-range version, Sultai Jund or Bant, 
uh, because your base color combinations are blue, are green and either blue or black. Because Garuda takes either double blue or double black or blue black. Because technically that means you could be Teamer as well. But you know your your Sultai Jund Bant Teamer version. You want to leverage powerful interactive elements alongside your combo. And in in the case of Bant, you know you get to pick up Shatter the Sky to keep the board clear. You get to you know that way you can turn two ramp, turn three. You know turn two Wolf Willow Haven, turn three. Uh, migration path, turn four, shatter the sky with counter magic up to, to counter your your counter tap out, and then untap and jam the Gyruda down your throat. Like, that's a line. So is playing Gyruda in a Sultai shell where you have access to agonizing, or Sultai or Jund, where you have access to agonizing remorse to take away their out to the combo. Or to take away their Ugin that's going to go over the top of it. You know, in Jund, you get to pick up the... In Jund and Teamer, you get to pick up the the two-drop, four-damage-to-a-creature-or-planeswalker spell. That thing's really good. Like, really good. So... I mean, that... There's a lot to like in three-color variants of the deck. But I would be remiss if I didn't mention the last way you can build it, which is two-color, non-linear, non-green. Which is to say, you're playing Garuda and some six-drops. For example, Garuda flooping a Dream Trawler in Esper Control. You can do a lot worse than that. Garuda into Lockmere Serpent. You can do a lot worse than that. That's 13 Bower on the battlefield. Wherein you've played the proper tap-out control game for a few turns. You clear the board. You stabilize. You keep them from jamming a powerful thing down on you. And then you just jam your powerful thing right back. So all in all, Garuda Combo looks to be one of those decks that I'd be really interested in playing. And I hope you are too. But that brings us to our main topic. I want to, with, with Zendikar Rising on the eve of being released, it releases next Thursday. Today's the 11th, it releases on the 17th. I wanted to look at the standard format as it was the first time we got his Endicar set versus now and see how it's similar versus how it's different and we'll start with the similarities because it's kind of an interesting and sort of stark almost bleak comparison a proactive mid-range featuring a powerful card advantage engine and threat is the most popular deck. It rules the roost. Huh. Sound familiar? Back in 2009, it was Bloodbraid Elf. Bloodbraid Elf, John. 
you had Bloodbraid Elf, you had Garut Wildspeaker, you had Siege Gang Commander, you had Broodmate Dragon, but at the core of that deck was your powerful three to four mana play of Bloodbraid Elf into Blightning or a removal spell. And that allowed you to kind of step on the gas and, you know, hurdle yourself ahead of your opponent. You would Putrid Leech on two, Sprouting Thrynax on three, Bloodbraid into something on turn four. Sometimes you would Rampant Growth on two in order to Bloodbraid on turn three because it was just powerful enough to do the job. Aggro has become as linear as possible to try and keep pace. The mono red decks in that standard format, right at standard rotation, oh my goodness. Now, granted, we had lightning bolts, so that made the red decks a heck of a lot better. But especially once Zendikar dropped and we got Goblin Guide, we got Plated Geopede, we got Goblin Bushwhacker, we got uh, Stagger, no, we didn't get Stagger Shock right away, I guess. But we had Bolt, we had, uh, I know there was another one. I can't remember what it was, but I know we had another one. But the combination of Lightning Bolt, Goblin Guy, Plated Geopede, Searing Blaze, well, I guess that was also the next set. That was World Wake. So, Bolt, Goblin Guy, Geopede, um... I'm drawing a blank now. I can't remember all the cards beyond those. Just, you know, even right before rotation, it was tap land, haste creature, haste creature, damage. Like, that's what you were into, that's what you were into mono red for. You were like, you wanted to play Boggart Ram Gang into... Um, like another Boggart Ram Gang plus Bolt into Demigod of Revenge and just like rain all the damage on your opponent because the Jun deck was so good. They also got Boggart Ram Gang. Like it was just silly. Right? Mana bases are going to be more defined by what they lost versus what they gained from Zendikar, at least on the surface as far as mana fixing goes. Mana consistency, if you will. That sounds awful familiar. And that, from that standard format, we lost the Filter Lands and Reflecting Pool and the Vivid Lands. We lost the entire mana base for the best control decks And we lost just the best mana-fixing lands from the format, and they were replaced by fetches, by lands that made you choose which color they were going to give you for the entire game. Sounds awfully familiar. You know, we had enemy fetches coming in. We don't have enemy or allied. We have kind of a weird mixture of both in Zendikar Rising with the, the flip lands. But, functionally speaking, mana bases are losing Shocklands. 
which is a huge blow. We're losing 10 lands that astronomically improved mana fixing while they were in standard. There are some tribal synergies, but they're really going to need to be fleshed out more in, in later sets. I.e., we have par party on the way in Zendikar Rising. I can't imagine that wasn't a seed for Adventures in the Forgotten Realms. I, just, I can't. There's not a scenario where those two things aren't connected in my mind. Almost makes me wonder if it was supposed to be in Adventures of the Forgotten Realms and they just didn't have room. I'm not saying it's what happened, I'm just saying it's something that could have happened. But other tribal synergies in Standard, like we have Knights. What else do we have for tribal? Like, we got some human stuff, sort of. That feels more like a plant for Innistrad. Except this the set where we got all the human support rotates. You know, we got the, the human, non-human stuff from Ikoria, but it really needs just more cards involved to flesh it out a little bit better. We've got... Um, oh, what is it? We've got just... You know, we've got little bits and pieces of tribal synergies. There's the individual tribes within the party archetypes, the clerics, the rogues, the wizards, and the um, warriors. But that's not enough to build a deck all the way around. Back then, excuse me, we were leaving behind a tribal set moving towards Endicar, but we still had little smatterings of tribal support. Moving into Zendikar, there were the allies. We had some merfolk tribal support from the core set. Like, I, I don't know. I don't know what that was for. I don't know what that was about. It was just a thing we were allowed to do. Landfall is incoming, but looks to be less of a build-around and more of something that just kind of accidentally happens. But we're probably wrong about that. Sound familiar? Ironically, it's the same card that's likely to prove us wrong. That card being Lotus Cobra. Now, the first time around, the first Zendikar set, we were so hilariously wrong because we were insistent that it wasn't going to be powerful enough on the basis that we didn't know how good the fetch lands were going to be in conjunction with both landfall abilities in a, as a whole and Lotus Cobra especially. Because every fetch land with Lotus Cobra represented six mana. Or every, rather, uh, three mana. Every fetch land with Lotus Cobra represented three mana. Like you would play the fetch, get a mana, sacrifice the fetch, get another land, float a mana, tap the land for mana. So every fetch land represented three mana. 
if you're dropping it from your hand or putting it onto the battlefield some other way. And we had a lot of ways to do that. So, like, on its face, Lotus Cobra doesn't look like it's going to be nearly as good this time. But we still have Fable Passage, and we still have Uro, which can still allow you off a resolved and surviving turn two Cobra. You can go Fable Passage to float mana, tap my other two, play Uro, Draw, play another Fable Passage. Now I control four lands. Float a mana. Sacrifice Fable Passage. Go get a basic. Float a mana. Sacrifice Fable Passage. Go get another basic. Float a mana. Tap the two basics. So now we can cast a five drop after our Uro. That's potentially eight mana on turn three. And then we still have cards like Evolving Wilds and Standard. It's not sexy. It requires you to play more basics in your deck. But it's a card that gives you double landfall triggers for the purposes of cards like Lotus Cobra or the other myriad of weird kind of mopey landfalls. So while it looks on its face like this is not going to work at all, like it's not going to be good, very possible that we're wrong about that and wrong in a big way. And last but not least, when the similarities, where the similarities end, powerful one and two mana removal spells are going to dictate what creatures are playable in standard. Alara's Indicar standard had... Path to Exile, Lightning Bolt, and Terminate. Alongside cards like... Um, I had it and I lost it. Maelstrom Pulse and others. But the, the core removal of the format was Path to Exile, Lightning Bolt, Terminate. Path to Exile makes makes you want more creatures in your deck that cost a little bit more mana so that you can take advantage of the free land and it kind of invalidates creatures whose only value is being a creature at any point in the curve like if you get nothing out of that creature without it attacking your opponent it's really hard to justify it existing in your deck lightning bolt made any creature above three mana that died to it difficult to justify and then terminate made any creature that didn't give you its value right away sorry there's a train i'm gonna go this way and get away from it for a minute but you know lightning bolt or not lightning bolt terminate made any creature that costs more than two mana, or two mana or more, that didn't give you some form of value immediately, <clears throat> difficult to justify in your deck. Well, moving into whatever we want to call this, you know, moving into 2020 plus Zendikar standard, what are our best removal spells that we're looking at right now? You have Blood Chief's Thirst. 
which soft invalidates any creature that doesn't give you value at one or two mana. You have the the two drop four damage burn spell at instant speed, which makes it difficult to justify tapping out for any creature with four toughness or less that doesn't give you value. And you've got Shatter the Sky Extinction Event to say nothing of, you know, Scorching Dragon Fire, Eliminate. All these cards that do a really, really, really good job of invalidating different kinds of creatures. It's really, really similar. But that's where the similarities end. Let's look at the difference. The first difference, and the one I think will be the most important difference, is the digital age of magic that we're in right now, thanks to the combination of COVID and just the overall convenience of digital magic, should solve the format faster. There was a period of time in which, like, Jun was the best deck at Zendikar release. And from Zendikar release until probably July after Zendikar released. Not July. It was from Zendikar release till about May when we got Rise of the Eldrazi. A little, you know, Zendikar's release in October until like April or May. There were countless attempts made to say that, you know, I got a deck that posts an 80% win rate against Jun, and then they'd not, they'd get waxed by Jun in tournament play. Didn't work out for them. Didn't have an 80% win rate. You know, the the Mike Flores deck that ended up winning Worlds was basically just Jun that swapped black for white. Instead of playing Blightning and Maelstrom Pulse and Terminate and Putrid Leech and Sprouting Thrinax and Duress out of the sideboard and Broodmate Dragon, Flores wanted to play Wild Nacatles and Ranger of Eos and... Um, Baneslayer Angel, because in a matchup against Jund, they're going to be expending resources trying to get you into top deck mode, so the harder it is to get yourself out of top deck mode, or to get yourself, the harder it is to keep you in top deck mode, the harder it is for them to grind you out. But it was a deck that was designed for the weekend. Like, every one of your creatures not named Baneslayer Angel and Wooly Thoktar died to bolt. So when the Jun players decided it was probably a good idea to actually remember to pack all their lightning bolts for lunch, the Naya Ducks started to struggle. You know, being a Bloodbraid Elf deck that, like, you got to rely on Path to Exile. You got to, you know, a lot of the cards were similar, but it was a deck that was designed specifically to beat Jun. And it did that weekend and then was ultimately not very good after. You know, and it took 
forever for people to realize if you played Wrath Effects, because we had Day of Judgment and Standard, but playing a combination of Wrath Effects and uh, Sorcery Speed Card Draw and not trying to be counterspell heavy as a control deck is what ultimately made the difference and was ultimately one of the decks that was finally able to compete with John, but it took forever and a whole nother set release. So Digital Age of Magic is likely to help speed that process up to where we either see the most optimized version of Jund very quickly, or we find out really quick if anything can beat it. You know, if the Uro piles are really going to be the best decks in standard and they're, they're unbeatable, you know, you can't beat them reliably, no deck posts better than like a 40% win rate against it, we're going to find out real quick whether that's true. Uh, no fetches this time makes things way different. I know I talked about Evolving Wilds and Fable Passage earlier, but the fact of the matter is those two cards are fine, but they are not fetchlands. Fetchlands made landfall triggers broken. Like they allowed Lotus Cobra decks to cast six drops on turn three reliably. And then you got to couple Lotus Cobra with, uh, you know, threats like Knight of the Reliquary, threats like, uh, and cards like Noble Hierarch and Birds of Paradise to jump you ahead on mana really fast. And then it was just a matter of how you wanted to kill your opponent. It was the earliest versions of the deck that became Mythic would have been viable even all the way back then, nobody looked at it because we were more interested in trying to beat Jun. We, we needed to make sure Jun lost, and then we didn't beat Jun. But like playing a deck that played turn one Mana Dork into turn two Cobra into turn three Rampaging Bayloth off of, you know, fetch land, go get it, play a land that gives you that gives you three. You've got three lands in play now and a mana dork. You could even just like fetch land, go get, or play your fetch. I guess, no, it's still, they give you three, four. That wouldn't get you there. But I digress. You could you could get all the way to your rampaging Bayloth on turn three, just like you did in the original Mythic deck. We didn't do it. Everybody was afraid Cobra was going to be bad. They thought Cobra was just going to be a lightning rod. They didn't want to waste turn two tapping out for Lotus Cobra. I think we learned better by now. Another massive difference is the addition of modal double-faced cards. Anybody who knows me knows I love making choices in Magic that have consequences. <coughs> when I play Magic, I like my choices to matter. So I like playing cards that give me a lot of choices. Because the more times you get to, to make choices, the more times you get to practice making the right ones based on the information in front of you. And modal double-faced cards have the potential to just change the way we play Magic. 
because most of them are spells on one side, lands on the other, which could change how we do land counts in our decks. It can change how we, you know, how many lands is, is do we need? How many sources of a certain color do we need? Well, how many double-faced cards can we play to help offset that? How do we fit them into our mana curve? What do we want to do to make this work? Next, there's a wide variety of parasitic archetypes that are available from the last year. You couldn't really say that about Lorwyn's Endicar going into Alara's Endicar. The Alara, the Alara archetypes were not parasitic at all. Cascade cards just wanted you to play more non-land cards. Like, that's as parasitic as things got. Esper decks kind of wanted you to play artifacts, but then didn't really give you anything to do with them. Grixis decks just were Grixis decks. They've... they've They've been pretty, they have a pretty clearly defined brand. Naya decks were Naya decks. They were just decks with big dumb creatures in them. Jun decks were Jun decks. You played a combination of the best creatures and removal and disruption that you could. Like, there weren't really any parasitic archetypes in Alara. And that made it really difficult to look at Zendikar, which was by and large, also not a very parasitic set, and build decks. The Ultimately, the most parasitic deck, the parasitic mechanic out of the set ended up being Landfall. For all the people that will tell me I'm 10,000% wrong and allies was super parasitic, remember that it took another set. And then another, another set before that deck got enough cards to really be good. You know, it had to get Hada Freeblade and Champion of the Parish and Ondu Cleric and Akum Battlesinger before that deck could get good. In Standard, moving into Zendikar, we have Adventure. We have the Lucky Clover decks. We have Winota decks. We have uh, Cycling decks. So there are a number of options available to players that don't want to have to buy new cards in order to keep playing standard. Next up, a wider array of prop uh, a wider array of popular formats helps ease the pain of repetitive play patterns. The the last two kind of go hand in hand. So for those of you who weren't around for Alara's Endicar, there was a period in which everybody was so fed up with playing against Jund that when you would go to FNM or you would go to a, a PTQ or you would go to a 1K, you know, any kind of a, a store tournament, you would either play Jund or whatever you were playing was metagamed with Jund in mind. Like you were playing main deck flash freezes in your blue decks. You were playing main deck Deathmark in your not Jund black decks because it killed so many of their creatures. 
you were more interested in beating Jund than you were the field. Like the red decks just like the Boros landfall decks were the only ones that just kind of did what they did and fought John heads up. But even they were just really, really linear and were trying to get you so close to dead that they could just rip a bolt or two and kill you with their, their upcoming draw steps or, you know, rip goblin guide into goblin bushwhacker and kill you. I mean, just all the way around, John was public enemy number one, and it was not particularly close. And we didn't have standard Pro Tours for that format. Like, the first big event we had featuring Zendikar was Worlds. And that was two months after the set came out. And by then, a metagamed Naya deck that was designed to trump all of Jun's play patterns at the same points in the mana curve was one of the best things to be doing. That ought to tell you a heck of a lot about what that format looked like. And it caused a lot of players to stop playing standard. It caused a lot of players to stop playing magic entirely. But I don't think it'll be as bad this time around for two reasons. One, there's a wider array of possible formats to help ease the pain of repetitive play patterns. Limited has never been more accessible thanks to Arena. Historic, Pioneer, Modern, Pauper, Commander. There have never been more alternatives to standard that are embraced by Watsi. You gotta remember, at that time, there were two other formats Extended, and it was Extended and um, I'm drawing a blank here Legacy. Like, Extended Legacy Vintage. EDH was this cool new thing some people were trying out. And, yeah, that was it. That was the whole thing. But on top of that, Wizards has been a lot more freewheeling in their ban policy in the last couple of years. We are highly unlikely to see Uro continue to dominate this format like we saw Bloodbraid Elf dominate that format. Highly unlikely. You know, it, it, it was the same story for two years, right? It was Bloodbraid Elf from Alara Reborn until it rotated. At which point it became Jace the Mind Sculptor until it got banned. But Jace the Mind Sculptor had released in Worldway. So, Uro released in Theros. The winter set. Just like Bloodbraid did. It warped the entire mid-range macro archetype around whether or not you're playing Uro. Just like Bloodbraid did. 
That's not a coincidence to me. But it is something I think will go by the wayside if it starts to dominate like Bloodbraid did. So, that's going to do it for this week, everybody. I just thought it would be interesting to kind of take a look at where things are similar and where things are different. And maybe that information is something that's going to be valuable to you. I don't know. But, you got questions, you got comments, you got concerns, send them to me. It's the easiest way to, that's the easiest way to get me, get me right. Talk to me. Send them to me on Twitter. I'm at HomewardPathMTG. Send them to me on Facebook. My name is Adam Spain, like the country. Send them to me on uh, the Facebook group, Homeward Pathfinders. If you're a patron of the show, you get access to the Patron Pathfinders Discord. And if you want to have some fun with it, let's do hashtag MTG Dad Jokes. I always like to read those. So, first up, let me get it loaded. We're working on it. It's taking a minute. Search, search, hashtag MTG Dad like searching for Ascanto right now. It's ridiculous. Anyway. Let's see. I got to go back two weeks. There's going to be so many of these. Did I do that one already? Yeah. So first off, we have Mason. Who says, I refuse to party until COVID is handled. Nice try, Watsy, but you won't trick me. <laughs> Love it. Oh, come on now. Try again. Someone else says, uh, Brian, uh, Brian Canada, my friend, Brian Canada. If this set doesn't have a board wipe called Cry If I Want To, does not destroy Wizards Rogue rogues, warriors, or clerics, or a team pump effect called fight for your right, then they have really missed the party. <laughs> that seems really similar to what I said to Mason in the, in the hazy game discord, in which he was talking about, I don't know how I feel about party. It seems like fine. I said, I guess this rock won't be in your house tonight. And if you lose to it, it's going to make you lose your mind. Uh, we're going to do this all day. Uh, Eric Levine says, if your Golgari deck has a warrior, a rogue, a cleric, and a wizard, it's now called Party Rock. I don't make the rules. And to which Brian replied, said, we got to get a, we got to find a way to get an anthem in there. <laughs> uh, John Roberts, again, I keep telling y'all, to follow him. He says, I really want another Koth Planeswalker card, but that's probably not going to happen anytime soon since there's no Mirrodin coming up to which Titan Smash MTG says, I think it's, I think we can blame COVID because we're all trying to avoid having a cough. I said, you really thought you were going to sneak that one past me? I don't think you did. I think you were counting on me. Uh, Soul Archer 83 says, first deck of day one, 
and it was blue black rogues i said you know what i too like going rogue from time to time to which brian sharp says that's a salty pronounced salty s-a-u-l-t-i it's an anagram of salty rogue deck <laughs> a plus Brian Sharp comes back with another one thanks to the preview of Thieving Skydiver. One in a blue. Kicker of X. When it enters the battlefield, if it was kicked, gain control of target artifact with CMC X or less. If that artifact is an equipment, attach it to Thieving Sprite. Or Thieving Skydiver. Brian says, you shouldn't ember cleave your toys on the floor. They're mine now. <laughs> and last but not least... I haven't done one of these in a while. Tales from the Pit, number 2392 from Mark Rosewater. It says, Jace's biggest issue with Nahiri was her poor taste in music. And it's Jace covering his ears going, oh, not more hard rock. It's funny because she's a lithomancer. So she makes rocks move. See what I did there? You see what we're doing? <laughs> But that's all I've got for this week, everybody. I hope you enjoyed it. Again, questions, comments, concerns, send them, social media. And I leave on a somber day of remembrance for our country with the same thing I do every week. There is a lot of negativity going on in this world and in particular in this country right now. So remember the words of the 12th doctor when dealing with others never be cruel never be cowardly remember that hate is always foolish love is always wise always try to be nice but never fail to be kind so laugh hard drop lands be kind we'll catch you next week be safe everybody <laughs>